Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today I chat with Michael Twitty about his award-winning book, The Cooking Gene. By investigating his own ancestry, Twitty sheds light on the true history of the South and Southern cooking. When you are African-American, one of the biggest challenges of tracing your family's story is, you know, where exactly did we come from? How did we get there? Who, you know, who are we? Before my conversation with Twitty, I chat with journalist Vince Dixon about his article, Going Viral. How did the cronut, the rainbow bagel, and anything unicorn go viral? Today, restaurants are teaming up with marketing agencies to design foods for social media. Vince, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, You wrote a piece in Eater about viral food and Instagram, and you started by talking about what going viral used to mean. So what did going viral used to mean, and what does it mean now? The word viral has sort of changed over the years. It used to mean that an idea would pass from one person to another, and eventually it'll pass to so many people that it'll spread. Today, it mostly refers to uh, something broadcast from one person to the masses in a matter of seconds through social media. So you want to give us just one example, your article had many, but give us just one example of something that's gone viral, and maybe let's use that as a case study. Okay, we can take the uh, rainbow bagel. Okay. So the rainbow bagel had been around for several years, maybe like 10 years before it had gotten picked up by a media organization. So this media organization posted a video of the rainbow bagel, and suddenly everyone knew about the rainbow bagel. It wasn't just the New Yorkers who were in the neighborhood. What, what, What is a rainbow bagel? So the rainbow bagel is uh, essentially a bagel with a lot of food coloring and uh, very sweet cream cheese in the middle. With um, Sometimes it's loaded with sprinkles or little jellies. Um, but it, just imagine a typical bagel that's dyed to look like a rainbow hmm. and loaded with lots and lots of sugar. So are there any cases where someone took something that was more ordinary and made it go viral just because of the way it was brought to market? Or do all of these products have to be larger-than-life, surprising, funny, colorful, happy things? A lot of the things that do go viral are things that are everyday items that are taken to the extreme. So uh, one example is Union Fair Bakery here in New York has an exploding cupcake. So they've taken a cupcake and they just added a a uh, New Year's Eve uh, popper, party popper in the middle, and now it explodes. Or the... Uh... No, wait, 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 hold on. So <laughs> what do you mean? It, what's the point? I mean, maybe I'm too old. Well, what's the point of the exploding cupcake? I, I guess it's, it's that element of surprise. So I guess you can <laughs> think of it as taking everyday items, cotton candy, bagels, cupcakes, and then adding these different elements of things that go viral, an element of surprise. So some of these items have gone viral, but do people actually show up and buy and eat this stuff, or is it more conceptual art? I don't know if I can answer that question because you never see them eat the thing. They (laughs) take the photo and then it it stops. In some cases, the item seems impossible to to consume or finish. And so that's sort of the million-dollar question is, Is the food good, and is it even possible to eat, or is it just solely created for the photo? Uh, So at Eater, you guys uh, decided to try to create your own viral food product. So what did you come up with? 
yeah, so we tried to take all the different things that we learned about what goes viral and sort of create our own prototype, so to speak. So what we came up with was this very sparkly thing that we call the dragon egg. And basically it's this hollow chocolate egg-like shell. And the idea was to sort of appeal to this element of surprise. The egg is sort of sparkly and dark on the outside, but then when you crack it open, there's sort of all these wonderful gluttonous candies inside. And we sort of called it the dragon egg because it appealed to this sort of mystical, magical element that we see in a lot of viral foods from like unicorn to fairy and rainbow items. Or or Game of Thrones, you know. Or, yeah, Game of Thrones, yeah. So, so I have to ask, uh, did it go viral? No, so this was just sort of a, a prototype. We didn't push it out just for ethical reasons, I guess. Um, but I think it would have gone viral had we really, you know, pushed it and tried to make it a real product. Jeez, that would have been would have been a great test to see if you can manufacture something from the rules to see if it actually went viral. You guys got to go, got to go do that. Yeah. What What are some of the rules or some of the things you found out that were really surprising? You know, like totally different than what you thought going in. So initially, I kind of came into this project thinking that these businesses that were promising people that they could help them go viral were kind of these sort of shady, uh, behind-the-scenes hired guns. And what was interesting to learn was that actually a lot of restaurants and uh, these agencies don't view themselves as cheating. They sort of view this as the new norm, the new standard for restaurant marketing. Vince, thank you. Uh, Your piece in the theater about going viral, how to take strange donuts and bagels and other colorful things and turn them into huge bestsellers. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, for having me. That was Vince Dixon, reporter at Eater. His article is called Going Viral. Milshire Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. It's time to take some of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jamie Hunt from Tyrone, Georgia. How can we help you? Yeah, I'm sure this is all sorts of wrong, but let me start from the beginning. I was making a salad, and I wanted to do, like, a balsamic reduction. Maybe this is, like, meat and greens or something like that. I was trying to do this really quickly, and I thought it would go faster if I reduced it in my skillet instead of, like, a pot that I would normally do a a reduction in. So it reduced down just fine. It tasted good. And then I uh, poured it over my greens. It kind of candied and became chewy. How big was the pan and how much balsamic were you starting Um, with? 12-inch skillet, maybe like a quarter cup of balsamic. 
Yeah, it lo- sounds like it got to softball yeah, stage. You, you got it to 239 it, uh, degrees or something. So balsamic, oh. as you know, is got sugar in it. I mean, natural sugar, mostly. Okay. And so that when you reduce it, you're eliminating the water part of it and concentrating the sugar part of it. And so you mm-hmm. got it to what's known as softball stage. When you take mm-hmm. sugar syrup that's at that stage and you add it to water, it turns into a ball, a softball. Oh. Um, by the way, I just wanted to say you were right. If you're trying to reduce water out of a liquid, the best way to do it is in, in a large, wide pan like you did okay. uh, because there's far more space for it to evaporate than in a small pot. However, since it was just a quarter, quarter of a cup, cup yeah. you didn't need such a large skillet. So you just over-reduced it is all that happened. Okay. And actually, there's another trick. You can use red wine vinegar, add sugar to it, and reduce it down. And it'll taste just as good as balsamic vinegar. No way. You yep. think just oh as good? Goodness. No, no. I did a blind taste test of this. Are and you it, serious? Yeah, it was as good. It was as good. The okay. Italians are all screaming right well, now. <laughs> okay, well, let them scream. Yeah, I don't know. they are. No, I mean, <laughs> look, I love balsamic, but like putting it's on strawberries yeah. or something, Yeah. I uh, just reduce red wine vinegar with some little bit of sugar. Pretty good. I will try that. This yeah. is great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for calling. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye, Jamie. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hi, this is Dominic from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi. Oh, that's a cool town. How can we help you today? The other day, I was thinking about uh, vegetable stock and taking some of my old food scraps and making it. And it occurred to me that there's some things that I've never thrown into vegetable stock. Uh, so I was wondering if you could help me uh, determine what should and shouldn't go into vegetable stock and why not. I, I would say vegetables. <laughs> I love chicken stock. I'm sorry. Ve- vegetable stock is very hard. I played with this for years to get a really good, rich flavor. And we kept doing this and coming up with 12 ingredients, and you have to saute this and saute that and the onions to start. And it was just a lot of work. Now, if you are a vegetarian, obviously it's worth it. But Let's start there. Are you a vegetarian? Yeah, let's start with that. No, I'm not. I just kind of throw whatever scraps I have left from preparing dinner into the pot. Good. Scraps of chicken. <laughs> Now, I mean, to be serious, it is hard to make a homemade vegetable stock that has real depth of flavor. But Sarah's actually done this quite a lot, I think. No, I do the same procedure you did. I would saute the onions, saute the garlic, uh, add some tomato paste, get some color on it. Parmesan rind. Yeah, Parmesan, all those, again, umami things. But my guess is the reason you want to do this is to not waste food. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is an excellent idea. I think scraps of almost any vegetable, the only problem would be something that's sort of a funky vegetable, like those brassica guys, you know, like broccoli or turnips or cauliflower. Mm. If they get really, really overcooked, they can be sort of stinky. Right, so, the sulfuric smell. Yeah, so, so thank what, you. So what are you putting in the yeah, pot? So t- what well, yeah, so what are you tempted to? What do you want to know about? Yeah. Mostly I've been using just onions and uh, carrot ends and that sort of thing. Right. I was wondering also about things like uh, cucumbers came to mind. I'm not really a fan of cooked cucumbers. I don't think it would kill the stock, but I don't think it would. I I just personal. it's a personal thing. Well, then also I was thinking like uh, corn husks. That actually is a really good idea. Very tasty, yeah. So I'd say yes to corn husks. Next, what else? Well, then I also thought about leafy things like uh, spinach. I'd add that to the end, you know, when you're making a soup, just throw it in in the end. I wouldn't use it as a stock myself. Well, parsley would be okay, though. 
Parsley stems, yeah. yeah parsley. parsley. Stems of cilantro or parsley have a lot of flavor. Yeah. You could use those. Oh, yeah, I always throw leftover herbs in there. Yeah. Oh, you know, or like stems of chard. I guess, yeah, that would be good. Well, it's going to be the onion, the garlic, the shallot, the carrot that does most of the heavy lifting, right. the tomato paste. You know, in Victorian times, my favorite period in history, I mean, they kept something on the back burner all day. And just threw things in. And Fanny Farmer used to say, throw in the water you use to cook cabbage, which I know is a bit odd. That's a little bit in the... But, but they would never throw anything out and everything well, went in the stock pot. And so I guess every day you create different stock, but that's what they did. It was yeah. about saving food. It is about saving food. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I just won't be afraid to throw anything in there. Corn husk. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I see corn husk in your future. And try some potato skins. You never know. I will. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know when you can substitute a blender for a food processor or anything else, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That number, slowly, is 855-426-9843. Or you can email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Josiah in Albuquerque. Hi, Josiah. How can we help you today? Hey, well, I was hoping this would be a judgment-free call because I have a question about deep fryers. Why would we be passing judgment? I'm all for deep frying. Oh, great. Well, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of food blogs and not a lot of people talk about deep fryers. Why is that? No, you mean a deep fryer. You mean an electric countertop appliance, or you mean a fryer later? Uh, electric countertop appliance. That's because they're awful. <laughs> Why is that? Well, two problems. One is I like using more oil than they often contain. Like a big Dutch oven, you get a lot of oil. The more oil you have, the more stable the temperature, which I think is good. And two, you already have a Dutch oven, so you don't really need to go out and buy another appliance. I mean, are you, you're thinking about doing this because you think the temperature is more consistent, you don't get the smell, right. the mess. Yeah, so I was looking for better temperature control than my gas range, and then uh, something with a little cleaner and less odorous. You know what? At the end of the day, you still have to clean it up. You still have the oil to do something with. And when you use a top of the stove, you get the oil to 370. It'll go down when you add the chicken or the fries to 325 or 30. Most of your frying's done probably around 330 or 340. It's really not that hard to manage. You can just look at the bubbling or use an instant read thermometer. So, yeah, they're yeah. a little easier to use, but I don't think you're going to get a better product. Use it three times, it'll be in the basement. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you have a big kitchen? Yes. Do you like gadgets? Uh, I guess so, yeah. Do you use your gadgets? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, then I say get it. Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's an issue of the instant read thermometer giving me this impression that I can have things more precise than maybe I actually can. If you get a, um, a good, like, uh, thermopen instant read thermometer, it's not that hard to manage the temperature. I mean, I agree it isn't, but it sounds like this would be a fun thing for you. <laughs> well, no, wait, wait, wait. Is there an argument at home about this? Oh, you know, my wife would love for me to stop by. Okay, things. see? Chris, that was so perceptive the, of you. The psychiatrist is in. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> well, no, because I have the same problem. I think that here's the question. Right. If you spend 200 bucks, use it twice, will you be satisfied having spent the money? No, I'll be very disappointed Don't buy with it. myself. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you guys so much. I'll, All right, Josiah. For now, I'll work on my temperature surfing and yeah. see how that works out. Just okay. buy a good instant read. You'll be fine. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye.
See, this is radio is about psychology. You didn't know that. No, I sure do, but usually I'm the one who's being sensitive. <laughs> That's true. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Michael Twitty, author of The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think 
That makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In 2012, Michael Twitty set out on his Southern Discomfort Tour, where he traveled through the South to the places where his ancestors had been enslaved. Twitty immersed himself into their world. He even picked cotton. Today, Twitty is not just an author. He's also a living history interpreter. He cooks in pre-Civil War kitchens, recreating recipes from the antebellum era. His book, The Cooking Gene, recently won the 2018 James Beard Foundation's Book of the Year Award. Michael, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. Wonderful to have you uh, on Milk Street. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So here's, I have two questions to start. You spent a huge amount of time investigating your past, your genealogy, your family history, your culinary history. And I had two obvious questions. Are you the person you thought you were? And two, are you the person you wanted to be? Well, that's, that's a great way to start. Um, the answer to the second one is, yeah. I, I told my parents when I was six or seven years old that I wanted to be a chef, I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a preacher, and I wanted to be a teacher. I think you've got the bases covered. <laughs> I think I got the bases covered. It, you know, it's the route that we take that often surprises us. But to the first question, yes and no. Yes and no. The basic pieces were there. Some some genealogical surprises were there. Um, in other words, when you are African-American, one of the biggest challenges of tracing your family's story is, you know, where exactly did we come from? How did we get there? Who, you know, who are we? When you take those DNA tests and you are a salt and pepper southerner, <laughs> <laughs> You're going to find something out. You're going to find out that you're that you're going to have a lot of black relatives or a lot of white relatives or both. And you're going to find out that, you know, you're connected. And it's like, it's like people run away from that connection. I'm like, well, you know where it comes from. <laughs> I mean, the most African-blooded white people in America are in the South. So at what point do we ignore the fact that genetically we're actually family? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I'll just put it to you like this. When I went to England, Ireland, and Scotland, and then I went to Senegal, Nigeria, and Ghana, I saw far more in common between white Southerners and West Africans than I ever did (laughs) between (laughs) the same group and the British. Hey, well, uh, I've, I've been to Senegal. How would you describe the commonality between white Southerners and Senegalese? First is the food. <laughs> it's the okra. Right. It's the the the, pro, the proto gumbos in Senegal, right? right? 
It's the it's the way of it's the body gestures. It's the sound. You know, I've, I've often joked that Senegal and the God in Nigeria, it's uh-huh. in the South is mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> you know, it's like good. all that stuff <laughs> is like there. It's present. It's the way people dress, the way people walk. You see all that in the across cultures in the South, and you go, there is no way that African people could live among um, white folks as long and not have a deep impact on the food, but everything else as well. Slavery begins with one of the most important commodities in the history of the world, sugar. So the history of slavery begins with food. And these are my ancestors. I mean, that's why I named the names. There was no guarantee that I was ever going to have those names back or know that some people were cooks or they were chefs or they were culinary personalities before and after the Civil War. I didn't know any of this. This stuff wasn't taught to me. It wasn't told to me. So I wanted to be the first American food writer to not just do a cookbook but do a book, a food memoir, that traces my food experience as an American and looking less at how we make the food, which is really important, but more at how the food makes us. Let's talk about the genealogy. You, you, it's, it's very interesting. You went and you described in great detail how this works. You went to different services. But West African, 70% British Isles, 28% undetermined, 2%. Could you just give us, for those of us who might want to go down this uh, path, yeah. what was it like and what did you learn about how you go about discovering your past genealogically? One of the first things I I put out in the book is I said, here are all the pitfalls. You know, here are all the things people are going to say to you. And it doesn't really matter. That's not how we form identity. When truth is, you and I both know you can form identity from whatever you want. So I really kind of like try to squash those like naysaying points. The most important thing you have on your side is context. You see what I'm saying? If you do it without context, it doesn't make any sense. But I think one of the great things for African-Americans in particular is that when we get our cousin matches on some of these services, you can actually meet your African cousins. Hmm. You can actually meet the cousins you, you lost because of the slave trade. So, so when you went to Senegal, to Dakar, I assume you went to Dakar. Yes. Um, so you get off the plane, you go to Dakar. It's a couple million people, very unique place. Did you feel... Uh, at all at home there, or you felt like a stranger in a strange land? I felt immediately at home, and I'll tell you why. And I actually got to go to um, the city of Chess mm-hmm. in Mbour province, and that is where my grandfather, Blessed Memories, fourth cousin removed, no, sixth cousin removed lived. Still living there. The family's still living there. Hmm. So, I mean, it was like, wow, I, I'm actually... I'm in I'm, I'm in the village, so to speak. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, for African-Americans, I mean, the first thing is you're, you get off the plane and you're in a place where everybody lo- looks like you and you're in the majority. Yeah. And you're like, what? And then <laughs> the food part is even more important because from the first plate of food that you get, especially somebody who's descended from South Carolinians, that rice comes up. Yeah. And then comes, you know, they, they give you the suya, the or the DB, or the other kind right. of barbecue they have, and the, and the sauce piment, the hot sauce. Of course, I knew all this going in, right? I wasn't, I, I wasn't going in as a newbie. But I have to tell you, it was so, I don't know how to express it. It was incredibly um, ennobling. 
and it was real all of a sudden. It wasn't just something in a book or something someone told me. It was real. And I, I and it was it was impossible not to feel that connection. I'll tell you the most important thing to me was how the women tasted the food. Oh, on their on their hands, the back on of their, their hands. hands, because our mothers and grandmothers did this in the South. That was great. You mentioned that because that's the first thing I, I made a gu- seafood gumbo with someone, or they they cooked it. I watched, and she started dabbing it on the back of her hand and licking her hand, and I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "Well, I'm tasting the food," a- and I tried it. And it's a much better way to taste food. I, I, it's hard to describe why, but now I've started doing that too. Yeah, we took a bunch of um, chefs who never been to the continent to Ghana, and for everybody, that first moment in Accra when we saw the lady of the of the business taste the chateau that way, we all fell out because every single one of us remembered our mothers and grandmothers teaching us how to do it that way. Huh. Okay, I'm going to turn to Paul Dean just for a minute because I, I know you've talked about it a million times. But I, I was touched by this, and I'm just going to read. You know, you were our sort of soul mama, the white lady with the badonkadonk and the sass and the signifying, who gave us a taste of the old country, which is for us the former confederacy and just beyond. But then you say, I'm, I'm disappointed, but I'm not heartless. Mm. And, you, and you then offered her a chance for redemption by joining you at an event. Could you just describe that? Because you, you obviously could have come at that in a very different way. Yeah, because, you know, so the, here's the bottom line. Everybody's problematic. Let's just put that out there. Everybody. <laughs> no matter what you look like. No matter who you claim to be. With Paula Dino, I just saw, you know, a great American businesswoman who in many ways did reflect sort of like, she's like the blue-eyed soul of food. Hmm. Now, it did trouble me that you had so many white faces of Southern food and yet very few black folks representing uh, or able to represent or able to have the kind of platform, wealth, fame, credibility as the folks who were running the show at the time. And I was more upset about that than I was her choice of language, even though it disappointed me. But for her in particular, I just felt like this was an opportunity for her to actually like be that white Southern culinarian who says, okay, I'm here to learn. Right. I'm here to take a moment to change. She did not take me up on the offer, and that's her choice. But I meant it sincerely. And said, hey, let's talk about this. Let's have a conversation about being Southern, about being connected, about being kin, and about cooking. And using food as a lens for an opportunity for healing. You also mentioned that some of your friends had dressed up like Paula Dean for Halloween. I <laughs> 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 could you just yes, talk honey. about that for a second? <laughs> look, that's, that's, that look, you know, you, get, you got a choice. You can be... You can be RuPaul, you can be Paula Dean, you can be Diana Ross, you can be Stevie Nicks. You know, pick your diva and just roll with it. <laughs> I love that. And at, le- and at least have the decency to show up with some food if you're going to do that. Yeah, if you're going to dress like Paula Dean, show up with food. Uh, so uh, other things you say in your book, I love, I, need, I feel the need to protect the integrity of history, which I think is sort of the theme of your book in some ways. Uh, so then talk the integrity of food history. Are yeah. there a couple of examples of things where the usual suspects or the usual explanation for a dish is just totally wrong when you got into the research? 
Oh, yeah. Sorghum has often been falsely attributed to everybody else but black people. Uh, Hoppin' John and Country Captain is great southern one-pot dish. It's often treated as if it came wholesale from India. But when you actually break down the recipe, the cook fries the chicken before she smothers it in a spicy sauce. Very African. And that's why it's so important for me to be a living history interpreter. Because I'm actually making these dishes using cast iron, using copper, using the materials of the day, using wood fires, and having to actually time out and look at every single aspect of how I put together these dishes because I'm going, okay, this is what it must have been like, it must have felt like. These are the things the book can't tell you. So I'm going to end with a question I asked you at the beginning. You've been through this amazing, fascinating process to figure out culinary history, your family history. And you've come a long way. I mean, the book is just full of the detail of of this journey. But I got to believe at the end of the process, you had changed in some way. Or is is that complete, utter nonsense? No, no, definitely. For me, putting yourself under the microscope is not an act of intellectual self-pleasure. It really isn't. Because you're the hardest person you'll ever have to discover. And it's not egotistical, it's scary. You know, testing theories about what you always heard about you is scary. And where you come from and who you are, who you're supposed to be is scary. But on the other hand, when you make it a point to learn from everyone, to have them be part of your journey with you, it makes it incredibly easy to become a new person. But I you know, have since learned that we are a family. We are a human family. I went to the specifics of where I come from in Africa, and I went to the specifics of where I come from in the South, only to take that knowledge, make it my center, but around that center have the, 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 the basic truth that we are cousins, we are relatives, we are family. We owe each other the respect of brotherhood and sisterhood. And we each other a good meal. <laughs> you know, this is worth more than me just finding out where I come from. It's about us finding out where we need to go. Michael Twitty, thank you. You are, you are a terrific uh, addition to the world of, of food and history. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. That was Michael Twitty. His book is called The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. The history of the American South has been told in black and white, but it turns out that the DNA of Southern history is a story of many cultures, many cuisines, many bloodlines. It is, in fact, the story of America. Or put another way, it's complicated. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, tomato herb salad with sumac. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good, but I'm kind of angry today. 
tomatoes drive me crazy. Even in August, the best time of year, even go to a farmer's market and buy tomatoes. And sometimes they're okay, but a lot of times they don't have a lot of flavor. And they certainly have no flavor when you buy in the supermarket. So it's summertime. I want to make a tomato salad because why not? And they don't have flavor. So how can I take okay tomatoes and make a tomato salad that I actually want to eat? So Chris, we actually have a secret ingredient, which is sumac. And you know we use that all the time at Milk Street. It's a Middle Eastern flavoring, and it's actually a dried berry that's ground up and used like a spice. It has a citrusy flavor. It almost has a little bit of a salty bite. And we use it to do double duty here. So we put three teaspoons in a really simple vinaigrette, and then we also use it to finish at the end. So is it just sumac and tomatoes, or are we going to add something else to this recipe? It's not quite that simple, Chris. We also have a lemony, garlicky vinaigrette. And we're also going to use another technique, one that we love at the Milk Street Cooking School, and that is mellowing out our alliums. So we're going to throw our onions in lemon juice to take the bite out, and we're actually going to cook our garlic in a little boiling water and then make it into a paste. So the vinaigrette's flavorful, but it doesn't have too much of that bite. And we finish with lots of herbs, I hope. As always, Chris, we're going to add dill and parsley and mint, and if you want, you can even add a little feta at the end. So, Catherine, thank you. You've solved my tomato conundrum, which is how to take mediocre tomatoes and turn them into a great salad. I guess I have to be in a good mood for the rest of the day. We expect nothing but smiles, Chris. For the recipe for tomato herb salad with sumac, go to 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast app. This helps other people find the show and encourages them to listen. And thank you. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits, experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe farm-raised salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, 
and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milstia Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to answer your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Keith from North Carolina. Hi, Keith. How can we help you today? I have a goodly collection of shrimp heads and shrimp shells and shrimp tails that uh, my partner Susan brings from Wilmington, and uh, we've been making shrimp dishes, some of which I got out of the Milk Street print magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I've been saving the heads and all these bits and pieces, and I'm going to make some shrimp stock. And that's all fine and well, except I don't know a lot what to do with shrimp stock. And I was wondering if y'all had some tips. Well, I would make the stock, which I assume you know how to do. It doesn't need to be cooked very long, 20 minutes or so. Uh And then I would freeze it in ice cube trays and then take them out and put them in a you know, double bag in the freezer. They would be great. Anytime you cook fish, braised fish, for example, is sort of the basis for that. Yeah, I hate fish stock. I far prefer shrimp stock. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, you just throw in some interesting ingredients. I mean, let's say you were going to go Thai or something. You could throw in lemongrass and kefir lime leaves and um, ginger and garlic and flavor the broth and then just put in the fish and poach it and... Yum. Well, these are great ideas. It'd also be a good base for any kind of chowder. Mm. The great thing about shrimp stock is it doesn't take long to cook. It's not like a chicken or beef stock. So You could also use it for a paella right. kind of dish. Yes, you could. You know, or risotto. Yeah, well, that's true with any kind of rice. If you're cooking rice instead of water, excellent idea. Yeah. Yeah, use this. And if uh, it's mixed, sometimes we took the shrimp and just boiled them and had boiled shrimp. And then other times I took the heads off and just saved them raw. So is it interchangeable, the cooked shells and the raw shells, for making stock? 
No, if you've already cooked the shells, I don't think you can have a lot of that They're not going to have a lot of flavor no. in them. Okay. Well, right. one well, thing I would do is I would use a fairly small amount of water to the shells of the heads so you get a very concentrated stock. So when you freeze it good. in the ice cube trays... You just need one or two. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like a demi-gloss. I mean, it's a reduced, highly flavored liquid. And then you can just okay. add a, a cube or two to whatever you're doing. Awesome. Okay. That's wonderful. All right. I think uh, that'll get me down the road, definitely. Okay. okay. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Elizabeth from Nashua, New Hampshire. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Well, I'm doing really well today. Um, I'm calling about items that you need to keep in the refrigerator and those that you do not. You and Sarah at one time said that food right out of the refrigerator loses a lot of its flavor. And when I was a young girl, we didn't put a lot of things in the refrigerator. So I'm just thinking... What do I really need to keep in the fridge so I don't have to warm it up before I use it? That's an excellent question. That's true. You know, when I grew up, butter was kept on the counter. Eggs were kept on the counter. A lot of things were not refrigerated. The two things I think, any baked good, like a pie or a cake, if you put a chocolate cake in the refrigerator, that's it. It's done. And pies, I don't think, need to be kept no, in the fruit refrigerator. Pies. Yeah, fruit pies are fruit fine. Fruit pies, absolutely not. And a custard pie. And bread shouldn't be in the refrigerator. No. And Tomatoes should never be refrigerated, right. and potatoes should never be refrigerated, especially sweet potatoes. So those are some items. Some people put onions in the fridge because then they don't give off as much sulfur, but I leave my onions out. There's a short list. Is there something in particular you are interested in? Well, like mustard. Mayonnaise I would keep in the refrigerator. Absolutely. Mustard, no, and sriracha and those type of things. If it has a high salt or acid content, you're probably safe not keeping it in the fridge. It's funny. I'm thinking about my fridge right now, and I have all of those things in the fridge just because I'm a nervous Nelly. No, I don't think mustard's going to lose anything by being in the fridge. No. The main point is that actually food that's chilled doesn't always have as much flavor as at room temperature. Here's the one, though, in my household. My wife, when I make a vinaigrette or a dressing and leave it on the counter, of course. She always puts it in the fridge, and then you get this cloudy, nasty olive oil. It's olive oil, which you can leave at room temperature. It's vinegar, or whatever, you leave at room temperature. There's no reason to refrigerate vinaigrette. This is true. Yeah. This is true. Oh, well, see, I have my vinegar in the refrigerator, so. Your vinegar? Your vinegar? Yeah. Not necessary. No. That's <laughs> what they use to, you know, preserve things, is right. acidic ingredients like vinegar. It is Uh very, listen, you know, when in doubt, you can go to the USDA website and type it in and, you know, take their advice or don't take their advice, but uh, at least they'll give you sort of an idea of what should be refrigerated and what shouldn't. Well, thank you. That's a very good suggestion, and I will take my vinegar out of the fridge. (laughs) Okay. Well, I have a vinegar pot in the basement. I make my own. Just sits there and sits there and sits there. It's just fine. Well, um, when you're a novice cook uh, and don't make a science out of it, you just accept what people tell you, and I think that on the containers it always says, please refrigerate after opening. So that's what I do. They do say that. They do. I think they're lawyers. Is that like that, the though. tag on the mattress? It's don't tear the tag off. <laughs> yeah, you I go to jail. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, don't ever put tomatoes in the fridge unless no. you've cut them. If they're cut tomatoes, they need to go in the fridge, but otherwise yeah, don't do those that. Those I never have okay. uh, put in the refrigerator, and potatoes I never have either. Elizabeth, thank you. Yeah, thank you, sir okay. and lady. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Corey from White House, Ohio. Hi, Corey. What's your question? Well, at this point, I think I've kind of perfected the classic American chicken noodle soup kind of recipe. So uh, based on some comments that I've actually heard on this show, I've decided to do some chicken soup around the world themes at my own house. So I wanted to get kind of your must-have go-to recipes that I should uh, try out over the next few months. Well, we did one a while ago with a Somalian cook, Nimmo, and she lives here in the States now. I think it's called a white soup. They take a whole chicken. We use chicken breast. Uh, and they poach it in water with aromatics. But, and this is true in a lot of places around the world, she finishes it with some, like, cabbage and other shredded vegetables. And then she has two hot sauces, a red sauce and a green sauce. And so I think the secret to a lot of chicken soups is it's just a base, but it's what you put on top and mix in. So a lot of places in the world might use handfuls of herbs, you know, at the end, or a hot sauce at the end, or might use ginger or lemongrass to flavor the water. So I think it's really about not the base. It's about how you add on top of that base. Uh, and that, okay. But the Somali chicken soup, it's on our website, 177 Milk Street, is, is one of my favorites because it's simple and you can use one of the sauces or both of them, but it's got a lot of flavor and it's easy. I was going to recommend uh, Mexican uh, yeah. pozole. Yeah. The one I do, I cheat. Obviously, you're going to start with raw chicken. I use rotisserie <laughs> chicken after the fact. But, you know, you poach your chicken in chicken broth, and then what you do is you saute some onions, add some uh, salsa verde that you've made. I do a tomatillo salsa, you know, with scallions, cilantro, garlic, tomatillos, lime juice. You pulse that in food processor, throw it into the onions, and um, saute it for a bit and then add your chicken broth and take the meat off of the bones, throw in the chicken meat, and then a couple cans of hominy, which is like a kind of field corn mm. that's really yummy. I love that. And then you serve it with, you know, all the usual suspects, the tortilla chips and the grated cheese. Or you could do a chicken soup using harissa, for example, as a flavoring, which would also North African. be quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chickpeas, sure. Yeah, I'll uh, definitely start with some of those. The uh, Pozzoli and the uh, Somalian one sounds like a good place to start. Yeah, they're yes. both great. They're yes. really good. All right, thank you very much. Corey, thanks for calling. Yes. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, miso has become one of those darling ingredients, but people don't really know how to use it. So here at Milk Street, we have some unusual ways to use that miso sitting in your refrigerator. First of all, compound butter. The recipe is mix equal parts softened butter with white miso for do-it-all butter to flavor everything from chicken to blanched vegetables to pasta and rice. We think it's particularly good with asparagus. A steak sauce, either marinate a big flavor cut like skirt steak in equal parts red miso and soy, or slather a thin layer on the meat as it rests. It'll blend with the juices for an instant pan sauce. Salad dressing, the rich, thick body of miso adds depth and helps emulsify vinaigrettes. It's a great technique. And finally, oddly enough, caramel sauce. Try adding a little miso to your next batch of caramel sauce for a savory undercurrent to the sugary sweetness. No one's going to know it's there. By the way, wait until the caramel's cooled a little bit before whisking in one teaspoon of miso at a time. Please taste it in between additions. For more culinary tips and ideas, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. 
Right now, we're headed to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to chat with wine expert Stephen Muse. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. Uh, there's no wine here. Well, you know how I like to say that to really understand wine, you have to both drink it and think it. So, so this is the thinking this segment? This is the thinking part we're going to do today. Great, yeah. Terrific. Let me set the scene for you, Chris. You're at a restaurant with a fine wine list. How do we explain how any given wine is the way it is? I'm here to tell you today that there are really only three possible explanations for why a wine behaves the way it does. Got it. And each of these three elements begins with a T, so it's going to be really easy for you to remember, okay? Three T's. So, the first one... Is terroir. How did you know? I just, I just guessed. Well, good for you. <laughs> terroir simply means territory, a place. But it has this slightly extended meaning where, in addition to meaning the place, is used to describe the natural physical conditions that prevail in that place. So it might be, for example the average daily high and low temperatures, altitude, the exposition of the vineyard. Is it on a slope? And if so, what direction does the slope face? The chalkiness of the soil. Soil content right. and composition. Exactly. Right. All of these things. Now, these are all packaged up under the single term terroir. So T number one is terroir. Okay. okay. T number two. If it were the case that nature made wine instead of people, we wouldn't need anything beyond terroir to explain the way wine is. But this is not the case. Human beings make wine, and for most of wine's history, people who make wine and the people who buy wine have found it terribly convenient to arrange it so that wine that comes from like places share a like profile. The way this would typically happen is simply that one generation would hand down a set of practices to another, and over the years, the same wine would tend to be made. But today, these normative practices are embedded in wine law that we call appellation law. And we've talked about this before, right? So Chianti is an appellation. And what the appellation rules really do is to facilitate the replication of a normative style so that the wine that's made in this part of Tuscany in this style we call Chianti. So is the T trademark? I was waiting for the T word. <laughs> the T word? The T word is typicity. What? Oh, no. Normative wine is typical wine. And the word that we use to describe this quality typicity, huh? is typicity. This wine shows typicity. So simply put, terroir could be 50 acres or 100 acres. could be a very small area. It's the soil, the climate, temperature. Then in a region in which you might have a, a different kinds of terroir, there are winemaking rules and practices that give you some standardization within the region. They tend to even things out okay. a little bit, right. yes. And as I said, this has proved terrifically helpful. We still have these rules in place today, and we use them all the time. We go into a wine shop, and we pull a bottle of Chianti off the shelf. The reason that we can expect that it's going to taste like Chianti is because it's been made according to a set of rules that are designed to replicate a certain type or style of wine. Terroir, typicity, and three. <laughs> ah, well, the third one is really the kind of wild card, but we can't forget it. And that is the role of the individual winemaker who is looking for opportunities for expression, 
creativity to make something distinctive and perhaps unique. And this T is talent. I just want you to know, you, he just pointed at me when you said talent. <laughs> I, I feel blessed. But. Right. So talent is really important because we don't get creativity either from nature or from the rules that are designed to produce normal wines. So what's an example of creativity within a certain area? Right. So, well, this is, this is a good question. Very conscientious winemakers who are very focused on quality will say we can choose to use only older vines. We can choose to have lower yields so that every vine puts more power into fewer grapes. These things all make for better quality and uh, give the winemaker an opportunity to express himself in different ways while remaining inside the sort of normative shape of the Appalachian. So, terroir? Terroir. Typicity. Yep. I love that word. I have to use it three <laughs> times a day. Uh, and talent. Right. So now I got three T's. How do I use the three T's? What we've got here is an organizing principle for the overwhelming amount of data that we're confronted with when we're trying to talk about wine, right? And when you're talking to a sommelier or a retailer and you're trying to get a picture of the wine, these are the three things that you ought to be asking about. Where is the wine made? Is it typical of its appellation or is it something a little bit different? Who is the winemaker and what is his approach? You take these three pieces, you put them together, and you've got a really clear snapshot of the wine. Or I just bring you along every time I buy wine. <laughs> that, that's, that's the easy answer. So, Stephen, thank you. So, uh, terroir, typicity, and talent, the three organizing principles of understanding what wine to buy and drink. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was our resident wine expert, Stephen Muse. This week, I interviewed Vince Dixon about restaurant food items that went viral. Of course, we've all heard of the cronut, stuffed donuts, and other viral food trends, but what about 100 years ago? Well, around 1900, the trending food items were cornflakes, animal crackers, Ovaltine, the banana split, the ice cream sandwich, and peanut butter and jelly. All of those items are still with us today, but I doubt that anyone will be eating sushi donuts in 100 years. Please pass the cornflakes. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always find Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, watch our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, and order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsava. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.